it seemed all seemed very glamorous to me. And um, it was, I think it really was. It was a glamorous time in New York. Hello, my name is Kay Anderson and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories that they created there, and the people that they used to know. So, if, let's say, you were at a party and you met Malcolm McLaren, you know, that hugely influential promoter and manager for punk rock bands like Sex Pistols, Adam and the Ants, and Bow Wow Wow. And let's say you're at this party and he says to you, do you know what? I think you would really go down a storm in New York City. I think maybe you should move there. What would you do? Well, that is exactly the conundrum that this week's guest, Miss Guy, faced when he and his friend Lauren got, you know, just casually chatting to Mr. McLaren when they were at a party. And before long, they had packed their bags, said goodbye to their home city of San Diego, and made the move to the other side of the country. They showed up in New York City in the autumn of 1985, and almost immediately the two were plunged into, I I overdid that, plunged into the exciting New York City nightlife scene immediately. And in fact, they attended the Lost Space Boy Bar on their very first night in the city. And Boy Bar came to be a pretty big deal in Miss Guy's life, but... I will let him tell you more about that as the episode unfolds. But before I do, I just want to say that this is a really great conversation and another reminder after the episode we had a few weeks ago with Miss Sherry Vine about a time when New York City nightlife was vital and throbbing and electric and the center of the universe. Okay. I think I might be getting carried away. Shall I just shut up and we get on with it? I always wanted to start a band. That was sort of my main desire since I was a child, but I didn't necessarily come to New York with that in mind. I was more sort of like into dressing up and um, I wanted to go out to the clubs and I wanted to get as far away from my family. And I love my family. We, We grew up very close, but I just, I wanted a separate life from what I had known, which was school and family and small town sort of mentality even though it was in San Diego. But mm-hmm. I uh, really wanted to get away from people I went to school with, most of the people I went to school with. Oh, I hear you there. Yeah, <laughs> I know a lot of people can relate to that. And so we thought, well, you know, New York was as far away as you can get, really, in this country. So we weren't sure if we were going to like it, but we did. We liked it right off the bat. I mean, when we stepped into the city, we flew to Newark Airport in New Jersey and then took the bus to Port Authority. And I had been warned by my dad, who had never been to New York, but for some reason he was an authority on how dangerous it was and all of that. And um, 
I know he was just being a protective dad, you know, but, um, you know, warning, oh, don't, you'll get robbed and people will don't take a drink from a stranger in a club and blah, blah, blah. Well, so when we stepped out of Port Authority onto 8th Avenue and like 41st Street, I felt like I immediately loved the energy of New York. And um, I felt like, oh, this is great. You know, uh, I don't know what it was. I just, I didn't feel scared. I, I felt just sort of anonymous, but in a good way. And I didn't feel any sense of danger on the streets. And some, you know, man came up to us and offered to take our luggage and get help us into a cab. And we said no, because I was like, you know, wasn't going to hand my luggage off to a stranger on the street. But other than that, I mean, he wasn't aggressive or anything. Um, but we just, I don't know how we got to our friend's place. He lived in the West Village. He was living with a friend who, um, that's where we got to stay for a few days when we first got here. Anyway, um, it was evening. It was October of 85. So we went to his place and got dressed up and went out. And it was great. But my main goal when I got to New York was to dress up and go out and meet people who were going to maybe be like-minded. I figured eventually it would lead to starting a band and doing things I wanted to do. But I think my main goal was to just get into clubs. So that's what I did. Yeah, but I was, you know, a shy little weird teenager. But I came out of my shell fairly quickly in New York because people were very accepting of me and my friend. So, yeah. And Boy Bar was the first place we went to that night. So let's pick up on this then. You just described yourself as a shy little weird teenager. Yeah. Does that, and I'm like projecting lots of my own thoughts and experiences onto this. Does that mean that like when you were in high school, you just kind of kept a low profile, you just kind of kept out of people's way. And then when you were in an environment where you could flourish, for want of a better word, you flourished. Well, certainly in, you know, middle school and my first year or two in high school, I sort of tried to be under the radar of people. But when Lauren and I became good friends, best friends in, in 10th grade, she and I, we, there were only a few people at our school that, and it was all girls, I was the only boy, but there was like five of us who dressed up and were kind of into goth and whatever. We liked a lot of the English bands, you know, Culture Club, Duran Duran, Hazy Fantasy, the Eurythmics, Bow Wow Wow, Adam and the Ants, but literally like five of us in our school. Um, there might have been some other kids that liked some of those bands, but they didn't dress up. They just looked like everybody else, you know, at that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we were dyeing our hair bright colors and painting our nails and shaving off our eyebrows. And so I just decided I'm never going to be accepted by any of these people at my school. And I had a lot of friends from my earlier school years that I was still friends with, but we had gone different ways. Like they became more kind of like popular kids, cheerleaders and student presidents, class presidents and shit like that. But we were friends. I'm still friends with some of those girls. And we say, we would say hi in the halls. And if we had classes together, we'd sit together. But I certainly got a lot of shit from some of the jocks. And so by the end of 10th grade and all through 11th and 12th grade, I just said, fuck it. You know, I'm going to just be as weird as I can be and dress up and just to sort of antagonize a lot of those people who gave me a hard time for being 
a, you know, feminine, skinny, scrawny kid. So then I, I got to a point by my, maybe the end of 11th grade or my senior year where I, my friends would dare me to wear things to school just to sort of provoke some of the other students and, and some of the teachers. So I would wear anything. I wore a big sort of Tina Turner wig one day. I, I wore a bustier, um, that was my friend Lauren's, but I wore it over a t-shirt, but you know, I wore a pair of high heels, my first little pair of high heels that I got in LA to school. And I would wear like lace pants and just, you know, do whatever. So there was nothing I wasn't, I wasn't afraid I would, to do anything. I think I maybe wore like a skirt to school one day. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I mean. And I was still shy, but I was sort of becoming a little bit more brave, I suppose. And I don't know. So, but in New York, I was like, everything that I got made fun of in school for, they liked and people embraced me and there were other people like me. And so that was great. I felt like comfortable and I never felt fearful in New York. Never had any problems really, you know. Mm. So let's go back to your first impressions of New York. So you talked about feeling safe instantly, feeling like, wow. And no, you never said, wow, I'm adding that. Feeling like, wow, I've arrived Mm -hmm. and I feel comfortable here and I belong here. What else do you remember from those early days and your impressions of New York? Hmm. It was a bit of a culture shock because even though, you know, San Diego is metropolitan and LA certainly isn't, where I actually grew up and went to school was very like in the hills, very sort of in the sticks. So I had never been to a city like this. I had never been to New York. Neither one of us had ever come been here like for a visit or a family vacation or anything. But I liked it. I, and I liked how fast paced everything was. And I liked the um, spontaneity that I felt Southern California didn't have. And I still feel that way. Uh, you, here you you walk everywhere or you take public transportation or hop, you know, you can hop in a cab. I've never driven a car in my adult life. I mean, I, I can drive and I drove for a couple of my last couple of years in school, but I kind of like that. I've never had to own a car and I don't have to rely on that. And, uh, I liked being able to walk around the streets and you'd bump into friends and just be like, Oh, on a nice summer day, let's go take a walk or go get lunch or get some coffee or whatever and talk about where we were going that night or where we were the night before. And I felt like that was something that could never happen and where I was from in California, certainly, and not even in LA. So I liked that about New York and I loved how creative it was at that time in downtown New York um, and how many clubs there were and places you could go to. And, you know, it seemed like there were no rules here because you know, it was pre-Rudy Giuliani. So clubs, you know, barely had security guards. I mean, and you'd see a businessman walking down the street in the morning smoking a joint and and always you'd see people (laughs) shooting up on the streets, you know, junkies. And I guess it was considered a dangerous time, but like I said, I never felt unsafe. And um, I liked that you could go to a restaurant dressed up after a club at four in the morning and people would be playing loud music and there would be maybe a DJ in the restaurant and uh, people would be doing drugs right out in the open. And although I was never really that into drugs, um, 
I was, I experimented. I, that was part of being away from my family and kids I went to school with. And because I never did drugs in school, I was too afraid of, of the drugs making me who I really was inside. And I was trying to suppress who I really was around people I went to school with. And so once I got to New York, I experimented and, you know, I, I drank when I was out at night and did recreational drugs. Wait, 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 hold on. Sorry to just, just to pause there. So help me understand this. You said that you didn't take drugs at school because you were afraid of the real you coming out, but you also were being 3000% you by dressing up. Yeah, I know. That's sort of strange. But I, I guess I felt like, you know, I wanted to be in control. And dressing up in high mm. school, was I was in control of that. I, I, I tried smoking pot, you know, when I was about 14, 13, I don't know. And I didn't like it. It, it made me feel like I couldn't control maybe what I was going to say. And, you know, we drank all through high school and went out and to, went to parties and, you know, all of that. And that was like, different, you know, um, because I would just get kind of giggly. And all of my siblings, most, I don't think my sister, but my brother, certainly, they all smoked pot and did drugs. And so they would get in fights. And I just thought drugs make you lose control. I didn't want to risk taking something that was going to make me talk about things that I didn't want to talk about with certain people, even even starting a band. Because I, like I said, I was shy and I, I was secretive about a lot of the things mm. that I wanted to do, my dreams and all of that. So um, once I got to New York, I wasn't, I was meeting people who I was very, uh, I felt more comfortable talking about what I wanted to do, if that makes any oh. sense. Yeah, no, it's really interesting to hear you talk about that because I think I had a similar experience where I wouldn't talk about my dreams or my aspirations because I was in an environment where I thought that would just get shut down immediately and just kept that to myself and kind of plotted and planned for when I was out of there. Yeah. Like I said, I was, my family, we were all very close and my, my older brothers had a bands and my dad was in a band so everybody was musical and they were all really talented and I I don't I'm sure my parents knew that I well they knew I was interested in music but I don't know if I ever told them as a child that I wanted to start a band but I secretly I did and I just thought oh gosh I, I can't sing like them like my brothers or my dad and I can't play guitar like them they're so they were all very talented so I guess that was another reason why I didn't speak about that mm. with my family. And then when I got to New York and came out of my shell a little bit, I I felt like, oh, I can do this my own way. I don't have to be like my dad or my brothers and sing like them or have to. I don't have to play guitar. I never did on stage. So moving across the country was the, definitely the right thing and, and the best thing for me to do. I can't imagine what my life would have been like if I had gone to L.A. and being close to enough to my family that I could drive home if I needed to, or just go home and have my mom make me something to eat, which I, you know, Mm. I loved my mom. We were very close and we still are close, but I feel like most of my siblings moved out, but would come back. And I just left and never went back. I mean, once I was here, I had to rely on myself and make shit happen. And I couldn't go home for the weekend or take my laundry home to do, you know, 
And that was good for me. Yeah. It reminds me of this saying that I am going to get incredibly wrong, but it's something like, if you have a safety net, you will use it. Sure. Yeah. So sometimes putting yourself in that situation where there is no safety net, you have to make it work. Yeah. Yeah, that that's true. And uh, we had Lauren and I, she got a job like the first day we were in New York. Not the first day. We went out the, that night. We went to Boy Bar Priorities. and Palladium. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but the next day she went out and got a job and I struggled. I couldn't find a job. It took me a long, a while. And then we, we couldn't stay in the apartment we were staying at anymore. We weren't there long, not even probably a week. And then we went and we stayed at like some hotel on what, the Washington Square Park Hotel, I think it was called or is called. She found an apartment and I ended up staying in the Chelsea Hotel with about four other friends until I met my friend and first roommate and he needed a roommate. So I moved in with him and I had just finally found a job around that time in a record store. And so, you know, and if that had been me in LA, I would have just gone home, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So, but I didn't want to go home. I didn't want to, I didn't want to leave New York. The nightlife was too great. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you've just said that you went out that first night and that's what we're here to talk about, yeah. going out. Yeah. So let's get on to it. Okay. So where did you go on that first night? We went to Boy Bar on St. Mark's Place, and it was uh, great. We, we walked in. Uh, I didn't know what to expect. I don't think Lauren did either. Um, but we went with our friend Stephen, who we knew from Southern California and we were staying with. And he had been going there for a couple of months probably. So he knew the door person and we got right in and we, um, you know, we drank for free and we, we got in for free. So I felt like, uh, I felt like a movie star cause I was treated very well, <laughs> or at least I thought because I got into a club for free and was drinking for free. And then we stayed there for a bit and we watched the show. They had drag shows on Thursday nights. It was a Thursday night and we watched the show and there were three performers, the Connie girl, who was amazing, Glamamore, who was amazing, and then this queen named Shannon, who was beautiful. And uh, so you remember all of them? I do, yeah. And I mean, I'm from the first, wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, because I wanted to perform, I didn't necessarily want to do drag shows, although I did, the guy who, who organized all the shows there, approached me after about six months of going there all the time because I was always dressed up and in high heels. Mm -hmm. And he asked me if I wanted to perform sometime there. And I said, sure. Even though I had no interest in being a drag performer or anything and didn't feel like I wanted to do any of that, but I, w I did want to get on stage and I had never been on a stage yet. So I said, yeah, I, did. I started performing there and they had Miss Boy Bar contests. I was in the Miss Boy Bar, con the second Miss Boy Bar contest. And the blonde queen that I saw the first night we were in New York, Shannon, she was the original Miss Boy Bar. Um, she must have just won. That was the first Miss Boy Bar. And she won. And that was, I guess, right around the time I got to New York or a little after. But she was a blonde beauty not a great performer, really, but um, I mean, you know, 
She wasn't. She was gorgeous, though. I mean, it was kind of shocking how beautiful she was. Just stunning. And um, but I did like her taste. They were everybody did lip syncs, um, and she did songs that I really liked, like um, "Ripper to Shreds" by Blondie, and or um, uh. I forget what Dolly Parton song, but it might have been Jolene. But she did interesting lip syncs. I mean, they all did. That's what was so great about the queens at Boy Bar at that time. We had seen some drag shows in L.A. when we were still in school, and those were more sort of traditional, I suppose, although there were a couple of standout ones that... But in New York, everybody was unique and unlike anything we had ever seen. I I just loved all of the drag queens so much. And again, I didn't want to be a drag performer, but I really liked everybody was so unique and had their own thing. And a lot of them were into rock or punk, and so... It was good, uh, a good education for me and good experience doing that. And anyway, but Boy but, Bar but, was really wait, fun. Wait, wait, so just for a point of clarification, so you would perform there, but you wouldn't refer to yourself as a drag queen? No. <clears throat> there were a few of us that didn't. Um, uh-huh. I never really, I mean, I didn't care if someone called me a drag queen. I mean, people called me drag queen uh, in those days all the time and still do. But... I always felt a connection with being androgynous or being a pretty boy. I mean, that's basically what I always liked. I just thought I was like a boy that had feminine features and looked feminine and pretty. And mm-hmm. I liked that. But anyway, so yeah, I didn't uh, be, I wasn't saying like, oh, I'm doing a drag show. Come to my drag show. I'd just say I'm doing a show at Boy Bar or at Pyramid or so. And did you find... You've talked about the scene being quite diverse and lots of people being really unique performers. So maybe this isn't an issue, but I know lots of people until very recently have had very narrow minds about what constitutes drag and what what the whole art form should be. Did you come up against weird attitudes from people? No, not really. Um, there was a, a ton of drag queens in New York that did traditional drag and more of the older ones and that did sort of more traditional drag performances. Those never really appealed to me, although I was friends with a couple and, and would like to see them on stage, especially some of them that were really beautiful. But I didn't really have any interest in seeing a drag queen lip sync a Judy Garland song or Eliza Minnelli song or Barbara Streisand song, although I like all those artists, I was more interested in people that were doing weird shit. And uh, anyway, mm. yeah. But Okay, so let's take a step away from drag for a minute. I really want to find out more about you at that time showing up in New York, being fresh to the scene, being fresh to really any scene because you were just out of high school and you were just a kid. What... Okay, I just need to come clean. I'm really just really interested in finding out about the men's as and the boys and what your experience was in finally being in a space where you could touch and flirt and be around men and potentially go home with them. Um, No, gay boys didn't like me like that. They weren't attracted to me sexually. They thought I was fabulous because of the way I looked Mm -hmm. and I had friends but you know that were gay but they liked other boys that looked like them that looked more boyish I suppose 
Uh, mm-hmm. Honestly, I mean, I had more guys attracted to to me at the um, straight rock venues that I would go to, um, ah, and some of them would be flirty, but in a kind of fun way, like a lighthearted way. And some were like maybe bisexual, I don't know. And some were just like curious straight guys or, that liked me because I looked feminine and pretty and like a girl. So, well, How do you respond to people that are flirty in a like fun way? Does it fuck with your head or do you take it for what it is? Well, a little bit in those days because I wasn't super sexually active. I was um, mm-hmm. shy and I, I wasn't brazen. It was hard because I I would meet gay boys and we'd become friends and I'd maybe have a crush on them or think they're cute, but I knew that they weren't interested in me sexually. And then I would meet these straight guys that were like flirty or maybe open-minded and would be get drunk and be touchy or whatever. But I didn't know how to handle that either at that time because I was just shy and naive mm. and I didn't want to push. I wasn't pushy. So... I probably passed up some good opportunities because I was too shy <laughs> at that time with the straight guys. But anyway, I um, I just I what I didn't really care about sex so much at that time either. I was mm-hmm. uh, you know I I fool around and you know meet people, hookups, have little hookups, and but I wasn't like talking about it with my friends or anything. It was more of a separate thing I did on my own. I just was more interested in dressing up and and hanging out and getting into clubs for free. And I went everywhere in those days. I mean, <laughs> free we went drinks, out, don't forget them. And free drinks, yeah. We went out every <laughs> night. So that was a big deal to me. I, I, I guess I was becoming a nightlife celebrity, but I didn't think of that in those terms at that time. People started knowing who I was, and um, I, I didn't set out to become a nightlife fixture in New York. That was never on my list of things I wanted to accomplish. But I guess from going out and dressing up and looking a certain way, I sort of started getting attention and people started knowing who I was. And so, and that was fine, but it wasn't what I wanted. Mm. But, um, but, but, okay, just quickly, I want to make sure that I fully understood this properly. What, What is a nightlife celebrity in your definition of the term? God, I don't know. Uh, you know, like I said, when I first got to New York, all the nightlife celebrities that were around in those days, some are still around, some aren't, some have died, some have moved on. Um, but they were people who got in everywhere for free, got invited to all the fabulous parties and, you know, got photographed for magazines. And to me, they were famous the same way Grace Jones was famous or... or um, Warhol or Debbie Harry or, you know, certainly they weren't as as famous, but they were stars in my eyes. So mm-hmm. I guess with people that were nightlife celebrities after James St. James and Diane Brill and all, all of those types were, you know, it, it changes every year and there's always a new it girl and whatever. But um, it's somebody, I guess, who can just go pretty much anywhere and get in and you know, people will know them. They can maybe drink for free or whatever, or get paid by the venue to just come and host and invite a few mm-hmm. friends. And I don't know. I, I don't really know how I would define nightlife celebrity. I don't think that 
the nightlife celebrities that I have mentioned, that that was necessarily their goal to become that definitely wasn't mine, but you know, you're fine with it if it does happen. I mean, yeah. Um, so how did you know when, like, what was the moment you were like, oh, maybe I'm a nightlife celebrity? I guess when I started seeing my picture in magazines or my name mentioned in Michael Musto's column in the Village Voice. Uh-uh. Saying what scandalous things you got up to. Yeah, uh, sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, it, it made me think, well, gosh, I'm I'm right here next a photo of me is right next to Andy Warhol and Diane Brill at the Palladium. And, or sometimes I'd be with some of those people and photos or whatever. And that was exciting for me to be seeing my picture in magazines. Mm. You know, I don't think it's probably as common as it was in the eighties and nineties because things are way more expensive now. And, you know, um, people are on TikTok instead. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so, but I think that there are people who probably set out to become nightlife celebrities, and this is maybe back in those days, who didn't quite capture anybody's attention Mm. because they didn't have an interesting look or they didn't, they weren't able to get gigs performing. I don't know. So I guess I feel pretty lucky that I was looking a way that caught people's attentions who could say, do you want to do a show here at one of the hottest Thursday night spots in New York. Mm. So that was fortunate for me because I don't know, I wouldn't have probably been bold enough to go up and ask somebody if I could perform. And I didn't really do that with my band either. We just, I lucked out and had people wanting to book my band. And so that maybe stemmed back to me being known on the New York nightlife scene. I don't don't know. But um, Mm. it certainly wasn't a goal of mine and I wouldn't recommend that to anybody that's moving to New York or young and interested in going out. Because like I said, I don't think it really exists much. I don't know what a young drag queen would do coming to New York or LA or London now. I guess if you're interested in becoming a drag performer, you'd try to figure out a way to get on RuPaul's Drag Race. That's the golden bullet, yeah. I don't think you would become known necessarily as a drag performer or as a young band starting out just playing venues in in New York or or L.A. Um, But that's just my opinion. Mm. Okay, so let's go back to that first night. We keep going in in an opposite direction, so I'm really sorry I've not been keeping us on the straight and narrow. That's okay. So you, you remembered the performers on that first night. Mm -hmm. What else do you remember about that first night there? I remember it was packed. The music was great. There were a couple of famous people there. One was David Yaratu, who was in ABC at the time, and I loved loved ABC. And uh, you would see people, not that first night at Boy Bar, but, you know, in New York in those days at clubs, you would see... Grace Jones out, Andy Warhol, Debbie Harry, Stephen Sprouse. Sometimes Divine was around. And so it was exciting, you know. And um, that night of Boy Bar was uh, a little bit overwhelming, I'm sure. And the music Mm. was great. You know, mostly current club music, probably sprinkled in with some like Chic or Diana Ross. And there were a lot of good songs 
at that time. Um, people being very friendly, that was a, a nice thing. And a lot of, you know, air kissing and a lot of smoking and drinking. And I didn't smoke, but everybody smoked. And uh, it, looked, it, it seemed all seemed very glamorous to me. Mm. And um, it was, I think it really was. It was a glamorous time in New York. And you became a regular at Boy Bar. Mm-hmm. What was what was special about that place? Well, um, you know, um, everybody just was very friendly, and um, you know, it was at a time when uh, you know there was a lot of pretense, I suppose, a lot of pretentious people, but it all seemed sort of like just for fun because that's the way it was at that mm-hmm. time. And, you know, there were, some people were snobby. I mean, I don't know, maybe people thought I was snobby because I was shy and I wouldn't just go up to a, a stranger, really. I was too shy. But um, I met a lot of people in those days and a lot of the people are still friends of mine, you know. And, and those three original performers that I started working with about six months later, they were all very supportive and taught me a lot about performing and um, gave me a lot of good, helpful advice. And, you know, Boybar had a really interesting backstory because I think they opened in 83 or 84, I don't know. It was before I got to New York, but the owner of the venue was a man named Paul McGregor, who was this older straight man who was very nice and very good looking, but strange. <laughs> he <laughs> had the craziest garlic breath that I've ever smelt. But so talking to him would be, uh, you know, because his breath was like fire, garlic, you know. But and he would also just walk around playing a flute. As you do. It was so bizarre. So you'd hear a flute coming and you'd be like, oh, here comes Paul McGregor. He was a hairstylist in that place he had had since the early, maybe the late 60s, definitely the early 70s. And it was a hair salon. It was his hair salon. And he gave Jane Fonda her famous shag for Clute, for the movie Clute. And I don't know if this is true or not, but apparently uh, Warren Beatty's character in Shampoo was loosely based on Paul McGregor. You know, because I guess there aren't a lot of straight men hairdressers, or maybe there weren't in those days, and maybe there are more so now. But so Paul was a straight hairdresser who whose hair salon eventually became Boy Bar, a, a very popular New York gay bar. Wait, so how does a salon become a club? Mm, well, <laughs> it uh, <laughs> he just took out this this the stations and the seats where people would their haircut I suppose I don't know and I don't I don't even know if I've ever seen photos of it as a salon but I don't know I guess he had a salon for however long and then yeah it sorry. became a yeah, bar I'm focusing on the wrong things so it became a bar that bar was boy bar you went there religiously uh, I don't think that's fair to say and then after a while it stopped being popular closed down do you remember hearing about that? Do you remember what your reaction was when you found out that it was closing? I I don't think I cared. Mm. I wasn't nostalgic in those days. Now I would love to be able to go to Boy Bar on a Thursday night. But in those days, 
I had just started DJing and I was starting to put a band together. And so I had a part, I was doing squeeze box and that was like wildly successful. And that's all I really cared about at the time. I wasn't like, Oh, a club I used to go to when I first got to New York is over. Um, Mm. And then it became a live music venue that I was at. I DJed there a lot. My band played there a lot. So I was in the building a lot still. And it was very similar looking, except that they had opened the basement and it was a different crowd. It wasn't gay. I mean, it was gay friendly, but it was yeah. more of like a straight live music rock venue. But I, you know, it was still my first 10 or so years of being in New York. So the whole thing about longing for another time in New York hadn't hit me yet. That didn't hit me for like probably another 10 years. And, you know, I've seen some documentaries in the past few months that have sort of made me nostalgic for other days other times in New York, Boy Bar being one. So I would never want to go back to another time in my life. But Boy Bar was certainly a happy time in my early days of New York. But it was also a time that was like I was trying to figure out who and what I wanted to be and who I was. And it was a big help in me finding out who I wanted to be and who I wanted to become probably more so than any other place in New York. Um, Ah. So that brings me to my next question, which was, what did it teach you about yourself? How did it teach you about who you wanted to be? Hmm. Well, I guess because I started meeting people who worked there and went there who were interested in the same things that I, I was interested in. And it was a place to be creative without any restraints you know there Mm. were no rules and um you could do anything and pretty much i got yelled at by paul mcgregor one night while i was trying to do a costume change i was doing a lip sync and something in the moments said i looked up and there was like a pipe across the top of the stage like up at the ceiling and it wasn't that high you could Mm. if you were tall enough you could touch it but I jumped up and grabbed the pipe and started swinging on it and finished my number and went back into the dressing room to change into my next costume. And Paul burst into the dressing room and yelled at me, don't ever get on that pipe. That could have burst. And we would have, you know, like went off. And I was like, oh, sorry, I didn't know. I just thought, you know, it was very funny. I don't know why I just thought of that. But otherwise, (laughs) he never probably cared what we did as long as we weren't swinging from the pipe above the stage. (laughs) But it was fun. I mean, it was just such a wild, carefree time. I guess a lot of the us that were working there and performing there were like little stars in that place on on the weekends Mm. and on Thursday nights. That was nice. And it was, you know, people would offer to buy you drinks or offer you drugs if you wanted. And I mean, you really could get anything you wanted and do anything you wanted. And so I had never experienced that before. And um, it's not like that in New York anymore, as far as I know. I don't go out that much, but I don't think venues now, at some point in the early, probably after 9-11, became very uptight and very strict. So there's like always a heavy security presence and there are just a lot of rules. And I usually tell younger friends, if they ask me what the biggest difference is nightlife then versus now, 
to me, it's just at some point there became a lot of rules. You know, that's mm. not conducive to a fun night, in my opinion, because there shouldn't be any rules. I guess that combined with like everybody having cameras on their phones put a damper on nightlife being shockingly wild because some of the things, I mean, you could, like I said, get anything you wanted and do anything you wanted. Nobody would really care. And that sort of changed. And, you know, I think that's when a lot of famous people stopped going out all the time. And, you know, because people could record, you know, Drew Mm. Barrymore couldn't take off her top and dance on a table at Squeezebox now because 500 people would have their phones up filming it, you know? Mm. I mean, seeing famous people out at night doesn't make a night great or not, but it can be exciting if you're a fan. And in those days, everywhere you went, there was somebody, you know, Boy George, Andy Warhol, um, Marilyn, uh, Grace Jones, you, you know, Madonna would even be out sometimes. Uh, it was a, it was a place that uh, I don't think would exist today or could exist. No, all the best places couldn't. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any memories of Boy Bar? Or maybe clubbing from your own queer scene that you are dying to get off your chest and tell someone about? Well, if that is the case, you are in luck. I want to create the biggest online record of people's memories and stories of queer clubbing, but I need help from you, dear listener. Go to lostspacespodcast.com, find the section, share a lost space, and then tell me all about what it is you got up to. I would love to hear from you. If that's a step too far and you just want to get in touch and let me know about how you feel about this episode or how you feel about the show or to give me tips on how not to be so meandering and annoying, why not get in touch through Instagram or Facebook where my handle is Lost Spaces Pod. Find out more about Miss Guy by following him on Instagram where he is at MissGuyNYC or by visiting his website which is simply MissGuy.com. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate if you took the time to subscribe, leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, or just tell other people who you think might be interested in finding out more about lost queer spaces and queer history and people's thoughts and random observations. That would be really cool. My name is Kay Anderson, and you have been listening to Lost Spaces. Lost Spaces.